I thought we'd start out just with reading two verses in Romans chapter 1 to get us started. We always like to talk about the gospel. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. So we understand that the only way that we can have salvation, the only way that we can have eternal life is through faith. Faith alone. That's it. We can't earn it. It's not something that we can can go out and be impressive to God. Um, any Anything that we do that seems to be um, something positive or something good for the kingdom of God is just God working through us. And that's that's an amazing gift that he's done these things and helps us to grow in our sanctification. Um, and that's something too. The, the other part is we have... We have faith. We understand that we're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And it's only by God's grace alone that our sins was imputed to Jesus Christ when he went to the cross. And his perfect righteousness was imputed to us when we believe. And then there's a change in us. We begin to grow in our sanctification and our Christ-likeness. And that's something that's evidenced by the fruits that we produce in this life. So we always like to start out talking about the gospel, um, even if it's just a little bit, because we're getting into the holiness of God, which I think is an attribute of God that really should be a major part of how that we understand the gospel. We can't really truly understand the gospel right in, in a right manner without understanding that God is holy. And because God is holy then we have some things that we need to deal with, right? Um, if God's holy, then that means that when I stand before him one day in the presence of one that's perfectly holy, then I need to be holy also. How do we get there? Well, that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're going to start out on uh, 174, jumping into the last attribute of God, which I think is my favorite attribute. I've got a little thing I wrote up at the top I'm not going to read it it's just my introduction to it but it's this is something that we're going to dive into and only scratch the surface of and so I've got a question here it says what does the word holy mean what does the word holy mean it's just an attribute that only God has I don't know how to describe it he's holy sacred it's like all of his attributes like combined is, is what makes him holy yeah yeah that's true that's true it literally means to be separate to be other right that's what the definition of holy means so we're looking at one who's separate from the way that we are right he's he's something other than what we are he's holy and so that's um that's just the very base definition of it. And we're going to dive into a little bit deeper. Um, the first point here on your page says, When dealing with the holiness of God, it means that God is set apart from his creatures 
He is infinitely above that which he has created. And the primary text that we're going to be using in understanding the holiness of God is Isaiah chapter 6, which I've brought up a few times as my one of my favorite sections of scripture. I love going to this section of scripture I do on a regular basis because um, any time that, that I feel like that my Christian life is starting to drift, and we all do that, we start to feel like we're not as close to God as we once were, it makes me say, you know what, I need to read Isaiah chapter 6 because whenever I do, it really impacts me and it turns the course of my life around and starts helping me to aim at the things that are really important, to find um, the things that should be priority in my life rather than putting other things in first place. So I really love this section of scripture. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah's, de- of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord Adonai sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So I've got the next point here. It says Uzziah had been the king of Israel since he was 16 years old and was the king for over 50 years. For the most part, Uzziah was a good king. You can only imagine the the turmoil felt by the people of that nation with the news of his death. So there's people that had lived in his kingdom their their entire lives and he was king. If he was king for for this long, right? Over 50 years. Some people a lot of people don't don't live that long. There's people born and died while he was still king. So the nation, I mean we know what it's like to have a president for a short time, right? At the most 8 years or or so. If we had a king that was was enthroned in power for over 50 years, all of life and all of our security and um, all of our a lot of hope, especially from the from the lost people of the world, was really tied in in this king and how that he ruled, um, and he was a good king. So um, you can just imagine the way people felt whenever King Uzziah died. At his death, um, there was a lot of a lot of ter- turmoil. So, in the middle of our, all of this turmoil that's happening, that's going on in the lives of all these people, all this in uncertainty, what's going to happen to us? 
you know, what's our next king going to be like? It's not like he's only going to be there for a few years. He's, he may be in place for another 50 years. He may be a bad king. You know, you have all these things in your minds. There's a lot of uncertainty in the people. In the middle of all this, God calls a man to be a prophet, to be a prophet during these unsettling times. This prophet is Isaiah. So if you remember earlier in our study, this is our next point. It says, if you remember earlier in our study, we went over the difference that the way that the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is used in Scripture, right? So whenever you see in Isaiah here, I actually spelled it out for you, those parentheses up at the top where it says, in the, ye in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, when you see that, it's the word Adonai. That's the Hebrew word that is meant by that. And then if you look on down into 3, where it says, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I put in parentheses Yahweh. So that's, so it's the, in English it's translated Lord, but in Hebrew it's two different words. It's two different words, and that's what's pretty cool when you read your Bible. It should read like that. So anytime you see those, you should understand what it means. So the same Eng English word is used, but it has two different meanings. So it tells us what the translator is trying to, trying, to, trying to say here to us, right? Uh, here's another example in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. And it says, the Lord, capital L, cap, uh, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. So the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here we see the Lord is talking to the Lord. Yahweh is talking to Adonai. Okay? So this is another good example of the Trinity, where we can see that God's talking to another person of the Trinity, right? And so we understand that God the Father is Yahweh, and he's speaking to the Son, who is Adonai, right? Adonai being the title. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6, we can understand that the person Isaiah sees here that's setting on that throne is Jesus Christ. It's the glorified and exalted Jesus Christ. In the word Adonai, it means sovereign one. Adonai, the definition, is sovereign one. So King Uzziah is dead here at this point. He's, he's dead and Israel is in mourning after that they've lost their king. This king that had reigned for so long. And then Adonai meets with Isaiah. Now what hope do you think that Isaiah probably had? Because Isaiah is part of this. He's part of this kingdom. He's part of this uncertainty. He'd lived during this king Uzziah's life. All the uncertainty he wasn't immune to, right? So in the middle of all this uncertainty, what seems to be chaos, he meets Jesus. I mean, that's what hope does that bring. And he meets Jesus in this exalted state that he, that he sees him. And he says here, I saw the Lord, that's Adonai, sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. 
So this next point says the clothing that kings, the clothing of kings was a measure of their status. Kings and queens would have long trains that would drag behind them as they walked before the people. Pages would follow behind kings of higher status to carry the long trains of their robes. So it's interesting here that Isaiah, he sees this scene, and the very first thing that he sees is Jesus Christ sitting upon his throne. And then the second thing that he sees is this train of his robe filling the temple, right? It's really hard to see, to, to miss this, um, this amazing scene with this huge train of Christ's robe just billowing this way and that way across the entire temple of God. This was a, a visual image for the benefit of Isaiah to see and also for our benefit showing us the exalted state of Jesus Christ. He's higher than any king. The glory that we've seen in this lifetime of these little people that call themselves kings that walk around with trains, I mean, this is, this is just a, a dark speck compared to this amazing scene that we're seeing with Jesus Christ that's um, filling his temple. And what a, a comfort that this must bring to Isaiah. What a comfort that this should bring to us to know that Jesus Christ is king of kings. And that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and he loves us and that he died for us and he adopted us into his own family, right? So the next point here says Jesus is sitting on his throne. He's not standing. I think this is important. He's sitting. He's not standing. He's not worried about what's going on in the world because he's sovereign over all of it. One day Jesus is going to stand, right? You guys know what's going to happen when he stands up? Yeah. We also know that Jesus, of course, stands up whenever he, um, he meets people who have died in Christ and comes. He comes and greets them, right? So that's another thing that we see of Jesus uh, standing up. But in this instance, he's seated on his throne. He's not worried about what's going on. He's not worried about the chaos that Israel thinks that they're in at the time. He's sovereign over it all. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he's, uh, he's sitting there. And so here we find him seated showing his sovereignty rather than his justice, right? His sovereignty rather than his justice. And then it says here in verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Next point says, this is the only reference in scripture to seraphim. These creatures seem to have been created for the sole purpose of serving God day and night. They have six wings. God doesn't make creatures with pointless features. If they have six wings, then each have a purpose. So every wing that they have has a purpose. And so we want to start kind of breaking down this purpose where the first thing that we see is that with two wings they covered their face. I think this is important because God's glory is so piercing, so powerful, it's unbearable for them to look upon him, even by these mighty angels who are with him day and night. So they literally are covering their face at the glory of God. That's how powerful that Jesus is. He's so powerful so glorious, 
so amazing that they can't even look upon him, right? They had to cover their face to protect themselves from the radiance of his glory. They had to shield their face and not look upon him. And we, we know that uh, in scripture that no man can look upon the glory of God and live, right? It would kill us if God fully manifested his glory to us. But in this particular instance, God seemed to supernaturally protect Isaiah just in order for him to see this and to be able to write it down and to be able to communicate this on the pages of Scripture so that we could get a taste of this, so that we could have a little bit of a glimpse into God's holiness, into God's amazing glory. The next point here says, Moses asked to see the face of God, but God out of mercy refused because Moses would have been incinerated by looking upon the face of God. So God carved out a place in the mountains and shows him his back. And what an experience that must have been. From Exodus 34, 29 through 30, it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that this, the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him so that Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses behold the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So this is a different instance. He's with him on the mountain and he had such an experience that his face was literally glowing when he came down and um, everybody was afraid to come near him. I think it's an amazing thing because I hear people claim that they've had God visit them. You guys ever heard those claims? I've heard people say, you know, that, that God has visited them in their bedroom at night. He appeared and told them to do something. <laughs> Whenever I read stuff like this, it makes me not believe a word that's coming out of their mouth. Because God, if they had actually came face to face with God, first of all, they wouldn't be here. They would be gone. And even if he, a little bit, just slightly appeared to them, they would be walking around looking like Moses, <laughs> right? Their face would be beaming out light. And they go, oh yeah, I met face to face with God in my bedroom last night. And it's like, it's like no big deal. It's like something they, uh, you know, that they do on a regular basis. Uh, don't, don't you do that? Don't you meet with God on a regular basis? <laughs> so I've, I've heard a lot of people say this kind of thing, mostly in the charismatic movement, but uh, it seems to be a very popular thing because if, if I say that God met me in my bedroom and he gave me this message, then what it does is it verifies me, right? So you need to listen to what I say because this is coming straight from God himself. And then they go and they spew things that, that they ought not be spewing. And so we see here the first instance of these two wings that they're used to cover the cherubim's face from the glory of God. And then it says here, with two he covered his feet. With two they covered their feet. Now what do you think that means? Uh, why, why do you think that the seraphim covered their feet? You guys ever thought about that? What's the scripture where it says 
about walking. This is holy ground. Remove your your shoes. Yeah. Yeah. That's whenever Moses met God at the burning bush. Is that why it was? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. What do you think that means? Why do you think? Why do you think that God had Moses remove, remove his shoes? Or why do you think that, in this case, the cherubim are using two wings to cover their feet? What, what do you think that represents? Reverence. Okay. The feet are the part that coming in contact with dirt and what's common. I don't know about in heaven how that all works. Yeah. But that might be why you remove your shoes so that you're not bringing anything common into a holy, not profaning a holy place. So mm-hmm. it might have to do with humility or acknowledging that they are not God, you know, lowliness or what have you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. R.C. Sproul talks about this a little bit, and he his understanding is that feet are a sign of creatureliness. And that what they're doing is they're they're showing respect and showing that they're a creature in in the presence of the Creator, and so they're they're kind of hiding their creatureliness in in a way. Um, I think that could make sense, but we really don't entirely know because Scripture doesn't tell us what that means. I think that's a good idea. And that's what the next point here says. It says, we must make assumptions as to why the seraphim covered their feet. This is something we probably will not understand, at least fully, until we stand before God. So I got a question here. It says, have you ever hidden a stain or tear in what you were wearing when talking to someone? So we seem to be very conscious we're very conscious of the way we look sometimes. If we are approaching someone that we respect or um, a boss or somebody in authority over us and we have something, a a tear or uh, something on our clothing, we seem to kind of try to hide that, right? Uh, We try try to cover that up. And that makes me question, you know, say, well, how would I feel when I'm standing before the creator of all things? You know, when I'm standing before Jesus Christ himself as Isaiah's doing here. But they're showing respect to God, um, a sign of, of honoring him by covering their feet, just as we would show a sign to someone we well, well respected by covering something in our, a tear or something in our clothes, right? You know, we kind of cover that up. Uh, in the presence of of someone, and so I, that may be what's going on here, just making a little bit of assumptions and kind of feeding off what Sproul says here. But we really don't don't entirely know. And so with two, he flew. And so this is um, the other set of wings he's using to fly. And so the angels were flying around the room. They're shielding their face from the glory of God. They're covering their feet and they're crying out to one another a message for us to understand, right? And that is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his 
glory. So here we can see that God's holiness and his glory are linked together, right? His holiness and his glory are linked together. So in Hebrew writing, it's common to repeat a word to call attention to it. It's also common to repeat phrases and what we call parallelisms, what we can see all throughout scripture. And so in English, we use things to, to draw attention to text. We use an exclamation point or we'll use a, a highlight or we'll use a bold text or sometimes underlining, different things like that. But during this time with Hebrew writing, they repeated words. And so um, you would, Jesus sometimes would say, truly, truly, I say to you. So he's, he's using this word twice to really call, call attention you know this is something really important you know everything else he's saying is important but he's saying here he's calling he's saying using two trulies and he's saying this is something really important you better pay attention here right and that's just a way that hebrew writing comes out is instead of using exclamation points or bold text or all these other things but there's countless examples of repeated phrases um, or words throughout scripture and these are always repeated no more than twice, right? No more than twice until we get to the attribute of God's holiness. And when we get to this attribute of God's holiness, then it's raised to a third degree. It's the only word in Scripture that's raised to the third degree. This is something that I think is particularly important that God wants us to understand, and that is that God is holy, holy, holy. The scripture never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. Scripture says that God is holy, holy, holy. This is God's primary attribute, the sum of all attributes perfectly radiated from himself. So that goes back to what Nikki said earlier, is that it's hard to sum up what God's holiness is, because it really is all of his attributes perfectly radiating out from himself. This is all kind of inclusive of the attributes of God, which is his primary attribute of holiness, of otherness, right? He's other, he's different, he's separate in everything that he does, in all of his attributes. He radiates these things out perfectly, right? So in verse 4, it says, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I got a question here. It says, and this is a, a, fun, a fun question. Was it the power of these seraphim's voices that caused the building to shake? Or did inanimate objects tremble at the proclamation that God is holy? What do you guys think? say inanimate objects tremble simply because Jesus even said I could have the stones sing. So That's right. I think you're right. Even the rocks will cry out if no one praises God. Yeah. It makes sense that these inanimate objects have the, the good sense to tremble <laughs> in the presence of God. Right? Even these inanimate objects have the good sense to do that. And it makes us say... How about people? How about us? Do we have the good sense to tremble at the presence of a holy, holy, holy God? And we know the world 
doesn't, but one day they will. One day they will. And then we have a, Isaiah's response here is, he says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. A woe in Scripture is a curse. So Isaiah is saying, Cursed is me, for I am ruined. So what he's doing is he's literally cursing himself because of what he's witnessing. He's traumatized by the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul says, The holiness of God is traumatic to an unholy people. I love that quote. This, this, co- this quote has really a lot of depth to it here. And we'll explore that a little bit in a minute. But this point, the next point says, The word ruined here is translated from the Hebrew word dama. And it gives the idea of being unraveled, like continuing to pull the string to unravel a garment. And so this is the idea that Isaiah feels like he's being unraveled. Uh, This isn't a pleasant thing, right? This is something that's, um, that's, that's difficult. It's something that he feels so overwhelmed that he feels like he's being pulled apart. This is a, an overwhelming sense of desperation, right? Of creatureliness, that he's in the presence of this amazingly holy God. And then um, I've got a question here. It says, have you ever pic- pictured yourself standing before a holy God? Have you guys ever pictured yourself doing that? Just walking up to God someday when you stand before him when, when we we know that we're all going to die one day or or Jesus is going to return one or the other is going to happen and um, have you ever just pictured that day and picture what it's going to be like to walk up to this scene that Isaiah is painting for us that's something good I think for us it's a good exercise for us to to imagine it really is that's why that I come back to this text when I'm going through difficult things that's why I come back to this text to, to try to get my priorities put in the right order, right? Because I know one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Isaiah. You know, I'm going to walk through those, those big doors, right? Push those big doors to the throne room, room open and walk in and see Jesus Christ high and lifted up and the train of his robe just flowing everywhere in that temple and seeing the seraphim flying just crying out holy 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 to the point of the whole entire temples just trembling that is something incredible that we're all going to witness at some point and then he says here whenever he's seeing all of this he he, pre, he pronounces a woe upon himself and then he says i'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I got a question that says, What do you think Isaiah meant by being a man of unclean lips? I think there's more to it than immediately comes to mind. What do you guys think? To me, unclean, it just means things that were not holy, that were sinners. Or not like God. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Anything else? I've heard it said that to take the name of the Lord in vain 
is more about lifestyle than it is about language. And so that would go to your point of it's not just about using bad words, but it's about an acknowledgement that I've taken the name of the Lord and yet look how I've lived. Look what I am, look who I am. Yeah. And so profaning in that way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of different things that he means by this. I think that those are right. I think he's also trying to say, he's seeing this scene, this amazing scene, and he's seeing God's holiness, God's glory, and his lips can't express what he's seeing, right? He can't, words seem cheap in this moment. Like there is no words to describe what I'm saying. And even the people on the planet that have glorified God with their lips, that just seems even unclean compared to what I see. You know, like even the highest words that I have seem unclean compared to what I'm actually seeing, comparing to what I'm actually witnessing, right? I think that there's, I think there's a lot here that this emotion that he's feeling, right? Whenever he says this, and he says here, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, my eyes have seen what my lips cannot express, <laughs> right? My eyes have seen this. My words are cheap. They feel unholy. They feel unclean. And then he, this next point here, we get into this section that R.C. Sproul talks about. And he says that the holiness of God is traumatic to an unholy people to an unholy people we're going to take a little bit of time here to unpack Sproul's statement so who wants to read Habakkuk 3 3 through 16 God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise his radiance is like the sunlight he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes from him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. 
You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. He pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Mm. So here we can see another response, right? I mean, when we read this, this is a, another amazing scene, just showing how powerful and mighty that God is to the point to where, you know, in, in verse 16, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. <laughs> my inward parts trembled at the sound of my lips quivered decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble um, I think that this is the way Isaiah felt whenever he stood before God um, I think this is the way that we all would feel <laughs> being in the presence of God who is perfectly holy who is omnipotent right who knows everything to omniscient knows everything that we've ever done in this life and um, I think that just seeing this and reading this should be something that says you know what this God is so beyond me that it really is as as R.C. Sproul puts it it really is traumatic in a lot of ways to people who are unholy um, We've already talked about Isaiah's response when he sees God. When he sees God for the first time in his life, he realizes who God is. Then he understood who God was. He understood himself in a way that he never had in his life up to this point. I would imagine that calling woe upon himself wasn't done in a mild tone. He was more than likely screaming this as he fell to his knees, traumatized before a holy God. And I really do think that it does help us to understand ourselves better when we understand God. We understand what we deserve whenever we see Him for who He is. We see Him in the light of His holiness. We see Him in, in light of His glory. It should be amazing and traumatic at the same time. It's amazing that He loves us enough to die for us. Um, it's something also that could be very, very traumatic. I've got a quote here from Sproul. Do you see that we spend our entire lives veiling ourselves from the true character of God? Because our natural bend, our natural inclination is to hide ourselves from Him because we know instinctively that as soon as the Holy appears, it exposes and reveals anything and anyone who is not holy by virtue of that standard. What he's saying here is really a very deep thing. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about Christians. He's saying that, that God's holiness is so traumatic 
that it hurts us to think about it, to dwell on it, to the point to where we try to cheapen it so we can live with our own guilt, right? So we can live with our own sinfulness, so that we can live with ourselves, so we try to veil that, right? We try to hide that. Uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time seeking after really understanding and getting a hold of God's holiness because it hurts us when we do, because it exposes who we are inside. And that's something that we want to, when it, it starts to get exposed, we begin to re retract from that, right? We try to, because it's traumatic to us. And so he's saying here, this is the natural response that people do. And that's, I think, why that we don't hear a whole lot of teaching from pastors and in churches about the holiness of God and what it really means, right? That's why that, that's, we, we don't have a real good understanding and grip of that because even pastors retract from that, you know, um, except Sproul. <laughs> and Sproul's the guy that uh, he's known for really going after trying to understand the holiness of God. His book on the holiness of God is one of the best ones I, I've ever read. I would highly recommend The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's one of my favorite books. I've got a question here. It says, have you ever convinced yourself that your sin was okay? <laughs> That's... <laughs> yeah. That's right. I think we all have, haven't we? I think we all have. 170 says, we do not want to truly know God because the closer we get to Him, the uglier our sin becomes. So the greater our knowledge becomes that God is holy, the more that we want to run away or forget or to downplay what it is that we've learned. And that's why that it's good to go back and learn this again and again and again. I've got a quote here from John Calvin. I love John Calvin. It's a long quote. Steve, you want to read that one? It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such a contemplation to look into himself. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to see ourselves, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. For being the only standard by which the application of which this conviction can be produced. Um, for since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. And since nothing appears within us or around us that is not tainted with very great impurity, so long as we keep our mind within the confines of human pollution, anything which is in some small degree less defiled delights us, delights us as if it were most pure, just as an eye to which nothing but black had previously presented, deems an object of whitish or even brownish hue to be perfectly white. 
Nay, the bodily sense may furnish a still stronger illustration of the extent to which we are deluded in estimating the powers of the mind. If at midday we either look down to the ground or on some on surrounding objects which lie open to our view, we think ourselves endued with a very strong and piercing eyesight. But when we look up to the sun and gaze at it and veil the sight which did excellently well from the earth, excellently well, for the earth is instantly so dazzled and confounded by the refulgence as to oblige us to confess that our acuteness in discerning terrestrial object is more is mere dimness when applied to the sun. Thus too it happens in estimating our spiritual qualities. So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being He is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far are those iniquities in us, or so far are those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. Hmm. It's a mouthful, but what a point he makes, right? I mean, I don't know of any better way to put that. We, we do seem pretty good when we're just comparing ourselves to what we see, <laughs> or what we, uh, we're comparing ourselves even to what we imagine. But when we compare ourselves to God himself and we have a realistic view of him, a view that is found in scripture alone, that gives us a totally different view of, of who we are, doesn't it? And that's what Calvin's doing here. He's really showing a, a big God and a little man, right? A huge, powerful, perfect God. And all we are is you know, this, these little worms that are just amazing that he's pouring out such love and grace on us to welcome us into his family. I love this quote. I love the way that Calvin writes. It's always a lot of uh, big words and real big ideas, but man, he gets his point across when you, when you read some of this stuff. It's really good. So I got a question that says, by what standard will God judge people? By what standard will God judge people? We will judge by His standard, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be His standard. That's right. That's right. This is the standard, right? Yep. It's not by our standard. <laughs> it's not by our own estimations, right? It's not by what we think, but by what He says here. Um, so we never finished looking uh, or exegeting Isaiah chapter 6. Let's take a look real quick at five, verse 5 and verse 6. It says, 
This is Isaiah speaking. He says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now, you, something here that we don't see is God comforting Isaiah. It's not like he says, oh, it's okay. It's not as bad as you say it is. You're not really a man of unclean lips. I mean, you're being too hard on yourself. That's not the response of God at all, right? Instead, he sends a seraphim with a hot burning coal <laughs> to touch Isaiah's lips. That's, that's painting a totally different picture than what some of us may have in, in our minds. And so I got a question that says, why did God do this? What is this telling us? We are profane and he's the only one who can solve that problem. He didn't send Isaiah on a quest. You know, Isaiah didn't go get the cold himself. God came to Isaiah and cured the problem. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Isaiah was probably potentially the most holy man alive at the time, right? Um, and he, but he was still a sinner. Isaiah is still a sinner. He's still, like you said, Steve. He's he's still profane, just as we are. And we know that sin is something that has to be punished. And but here, God is just showing, like you said, He came to Isaiah. He's the one that that. Um, came and purified his lips. This is really what um, what this is indicating, I think. And so it says here, the next question is, was it the burning of Isaiah's lips that justified his sins? And of course, that's a rhetorical question because we know the answer is no, because we know that Jesus was punished for Isaiah's sins. Jesus Christ was punished for everyone's sins. Isaiah's, ours, <laughs> Daniel's, uh, Adams, right? Um, Jesus was punished for all of our sins on the cross. But something that I think that that the reason that the coals touched his lips too is because this is indicating that his lips had to be purified because he was sent as a prophet of God. He was sent to bring a message of God. He was going to be the mouthpiece of God in, on this planet and we're still reading about this thing to, today in the year 2023 which is absolutely amazing. It says, how do you think that Isaiah felt being chosen by God and made ready for ministry by God himself? A lot of people struggle like, you know, I think I'm called into the ministry. I don't really know. I'm not sure. I think I am. Imagine in this case, there's no doubt whatsoever, right? Uh, God himself made him ready for ministry. This has to be, I mean, could anything really get you down? I mean, and he was given an impossible quest. He was given an impossible task. And God later tells him, you know, I'm going to send you down, but nobody's going to listen to you. Right? 
I mean, that would be really difficult if God himself hadn't put him on this quest. I think this is never going to leave his mind. <laughs> this, this thing that he has just witnessed, no matter how difficult life's going to be, no matter how difficult his ministry's going to be, he's going to have this in his mind, that God himself sent him on this mission. I mean, this is something that should be very encouraging to him. Um, the next point here says, True repentance before God is painful. We must understand the holiness of God to understand why that we should repent. And God gives us um, an example of how serious it is to take him lightly in Leviticus. Who wants to read Leviticus 10, 1 through 3? Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord then Moses said to Aaron it is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me I will be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored so Aaron therefore kept silent mm -hmm. So here we have a very serious example of what happened when two young clergymen took it upon themselves to experiment with the worship of God in a way that God had not commanded. In doing so, they dishonored God and made a mockery of His holiness. They took too lightly the holiness of God and were instantly stricken dead. So the priests during this time, they were given very specific instructions as to how to approach and how to worship God. Um, and we are still today too. I don't think that, um, that we have freedom to be able to worship God any way that we want to. I think God has told us in scripture how that we are to worship him. And this is just an instance where someone took liberty and going beyond that uh, because they didn't really understand the holiness of God, they took it too lightly, and God, of course, consumed them with fire. So Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord. What is strange fire? What is strange fire? What do you guys think? It just told us, right? Strange fire is doing something to worship or honor God that God has not authorized. God is not authorized. So, God told them how to worship him. God instructed them how to honor him, and they didn't take God seriously. Instead, they took liberty and said, well, I think I'm going to do it my way, right? That it's, I think it would be more fun doing it this way. And we can only imagine the outrage of Aaron, right? Because you've got to imagine, this is his children. <laughs> this is his kids. I think this is why that that he came up to Moses because he devoted his entire life and his sons to God and God struck his sons dead for taking unauthorized liberty in worship. So the question says why would they do this? Why would they change the way that God commanded he be honored? Probably should be our last question. We're about out of time. We're almost done though. Should we press on? What do you guys think? Yes. Okay. Go ahead and press on. Okay. So I think here 
the reason that they do that they did this is because their intention was really selfish, right? It was selfish. They may have grown tired of the same old thing. Maybe they thought they thought they could improve upon uh, what God had commanded them. But whatever their intention was, it was done with themselves and what they wanted in mind, rather than what God had commanded them. Rather than God being the object of their worship, it was um, it was them and their own liberty. Um, and so anything beyond what we see in Scripture as to how that we should worship God um, is strange fire. And so we got to be very careful how we worship God. And I've got a question here that says, are we worshiping Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped? Or are we worshiping Him in the way that we enjoy? And I think that's a, uh, a good question uh, for, for us because we all have different preferences. We all... You know, say, well, I want to, there's people that, that'll go to a church because they they like the music, you know. They may not like the preaching, but they like the music. Is it something that they enjoy? Are the songs about them? Um, that's the, one of the things that I always look at when I hear a, a song, a Christian song, especially a Christian worship song, is I say, who's this about? Is the song about me? Or am I worshiping God? Because that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I'm not worshiping me, but I'm worshiping Him. And so, um, next point down here says, Though Aaron was outraged and goes to Moses, he used wisdom at the, res at the response Moses gives. So, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. And so, here's the wisdom right here. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. <laughs> you know that he was hurting. This was his kids, right? This was his children that God just destroyed. He probably came to, to Moses wanting to, to defend his own children and say, you know, they devoted themselves to God. I can't believe God did this to them there you know I, you can just imagine all these things running through his his mind but Moses gives him wisdom right and Moses says what God said right that I will be treated as holy and Aaron had enough sense to say nothing <laughs> right to keep his mouth shut because he completely understood what Moses was saying here this isn't really a suggestion to us it's a warning God will be treated as holy. So our liberty to worship and praise God is limited to our example and instruction that we can find in Scripture alone. The next question says, are we entertained when we worship God or are we broken and grateful? That's something I think that we should all ask ourselves. Are we entertained or are we broken and grateful? Um, that's really going to show us what a good worship song is are we putting on a show for others when we worship God or are we in awe at who he is and what he has done are we trying to attract people to God by entertaining them when we worship God or are we focused utterly and totally on his perfections mercy toward us and holiness these are all good questions that we should ask ourselves what has just been described 
is called the regulative principle. So there's um, the regulative principle of Scripture, and there's the normative principle of Scripture. These are two uh, doctrines or theological terms that came about right after the Reformation. There were some of the Reformers that said that we should only worship God according to the Bible and the way that he's instructed us to worship. That's the regulative principle. Uh, then there's the other side that, that said, no, we, and they called it the normative principle, and they said, we can worship God any way that we see fit as long as it isn't something that goes against uh, what God has commanded us not to do, right? So there's two sides. We worship God only by what he says in Scripture alone, or, well, he didn't say that we couldn't worship this way, so we can worship this way, right? So that's the two sides, the regulative principle versus the normative principle. In Matthew 6 9, it says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name or your name. We can see here that God is to be treated holy. That's the very first thing that we should should pray for. I personally hold to the regulative principle of Scripture. I don't think we have liberty to worship God any way that we want to. I think that we are told in Scripture how that we should worship God, and I think the reason that we have this um, this story that we just read about Aaron's sons uh, presenting strange fire to God is a warning for us that we are to be very serious in the way that we worship God, very intentional in the way that we worship God. And even Jesus here is telling us that the very first thing that we should pray is that God would be honored as holy, that he should be honored as holy. And that's the thing, because using God's name in vain can be heard every few minutes if you listen to people talk out on the street or if you watch television. And unfortunately, this is also true a lot of times in the church. People say, OMG, I hear Christians say that. I've actually heard people, pastors say that from behind the pulpit, but that's something that should should shock us to use God's name other than than when speaking directly to him in prayer or you know to use it as a as a cuss word or a byword or anything like that is really using his name in vain. There's a lot of ways that we can use his name in vain. It's not just a, a cuss word, you know. I think Steve brought that up earlier tonight. It's also using um, another way is using his name to make a profit in the marketplace or to use his name for promotion. That's something that happens in uh, the South a lot. Uh, in the Bible Belt, is um, you can stamp Jesus on it and you may get a promotion or you, people may want to use your business because... Um, you got the fish on the sign. You got the fish on the sign. Yeah. That's right. Can I ask a, a, probably what will be a quick question for you? Yeah. Going back to the regulatory principle that is taken to a new level when churches like the Church of Christ say we can only use the instruments that are specified in the Bible to worship God because otherwise we're not worshiping Him exactly the way the Bible says. It can be taken too far sometimes and not far enough sometimes, I think. We know that in the Bible that there was stringed, there was stringed instruments. 
the resembles, there's all this. And Church of Christ don't use any music. <laughs> it's all because they don't think they have those instruments anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But I we have to, we can't be legalistic about it either, you know. We have to be and the regulative principle allows for music instruments. Um, there's there's you can get into some some splitting hairs over things such as um, pictures of Jesus, you know. Um, most regulative principle says that's breaking uh, the second commandment, right? That you're not to, to make a graven image. Um, regulative, most regulative principles, people that really hold to this principle says that you should not have a picture of Jesus uh, because uh, now you, you have made an image of God. This was actually a major controversy that happened and this is why that these two terms became known during the time of the Reformation is because the government had started printing coins that had Jesus' picture on it. And so a lot of the reformers said, no, you can't have a picture of Jesus. That's breaking the commandment. You know, that's uh, making a graven image of God. Now, whenever you close your eyes, you don't really, you know, you're not supposed to have an image in your mind of what Jesus looks like. You've just made a an image and now we have movies and we have TV shows and we have all these things and so the regulative principle would say that that's wrong where the normative principle says it, it's okay so there's there's a lot to that controversy there's a whole lot of things that's kind of intertwined with that I side on the way of um, I don't like pictures of Jesus personally I, I think that it's wrong I think that it is breaking the second commandment but there's other people that have different opinions on that. So, um, so but yeah, that's it, that's a, a big topic on those two different things. Holiness is a is partially a communicable attribute of God, and we know that that's only partially because we are imputed Christ's righteousness and holiness. We're holy in Jesus. We're holy as Christians, not on our own, right? Um, and so we've been kind of trying to point out what's a communicable attribute and what is an incommunicable attribute as we've been going through this study. So on page 174, it says, In what ways can we be holy? So this is dealing really with God's character, that he's pure, and we're called to be pure, right? And I think Thomas Watson's got a good quote here. I'll, I'll read it to finish this up. Thomas Watson, he says, Holiness is the only thing that distinguishes us from the reprobate part of the world. God's people have his seal upon them. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let all that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The people of God are sealed with a double seal, election, the Lord knows who are his and sanctification let everyone depart from iniquity as a nobleman is distinguished from another by his silver star as a virtuous woman is distinguished from a harlot by her chastity so holiness distinguishes between the two seeds all that are of God have Christ for their captain and holiness is the white color that they wore 
I think that's a good um, a good quote. I, I think we'll skip over the questions since we're 15 minutes over. You guys can feel free to go over those on your on your own. Um, and we kind of quickly, like I said, skimmed over the holiness of God. There's so much to it that um, we just scratched the surface, and I really encourage you guys anytime um, that you feel like you're starting to struggle in your Christian walk to go back and read Isaiah 6 and just be reminded of, of how God is holy and perfect and it really does clarify things and it um, it makes the things happening in, in this world seem very very minor compared to being Isaiah one day and seeing the holiness of God and standing there and witnessing the very thing that Isaiah wrote about in his book. You guys have any questions or thoughts?